Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and this is our final session of the 2013 School Leadership Summit. What a delightful day, and what a great way to cap things off, talking with Michael Fullen. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for being here. Ah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. And thanks for overcoming the technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. Thanks to TCAL, Wilson Consulting, the Asia Society, and Intel for their support of this event. It's been just a great day, especially we express appreciation to the Asia Society uh, for their support uh, with our keynotes today. This is a chance for those of you in the listening audience to indicate where you're participating from. I'm not going to dwell too long on this because um, we've lost a little bit of time, but it will be fun for Michael to, to see or hear through the worldwide scope of the conference today. And as you indicate on the map, those locations, I'm going to kind of queue up the conversation. There is a Mighty Bell space for this show, so continued conversation or resources can be placed in the link that is in the chat now. And Michael, we've got from Russia to New Zealand to Australia to Brazil to North America. Great. Okay, so um, I, I interviewed Mark Tucker on my Future of Education show about a book he wrote called Surpassing Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And Ontario is a really significant part of this story. Uh, and I didn't realize just sort of how intimately involved and associated you were with what took place there. Um, can you talk a little bit about the progress that's been made? Sure. Um, I mean, we. Um Ontario, there is no federal agency uh, of education in Canada, so think of each uh, province as independent in education. So Ontario has 12 million people, um, 5,000 schools, 2 million students in the public school system. And uh, there was an election in 2003 when a new uh, liberal leader came in, and his name is uh, Dalton McGuinty, and he appointed me as his uh, chief advisor at the beginning, and we took a stagnant system that is flatlined in terms of literacy, numeracy, high school graduation, and it's a long it's a long strategy story. We've written about it, but the, and certainly Mark Tucker and others have captured that because they've been up here and they've interviewed us. But what we did was uh, have a fairly strong agenda from the center, that is the government level, saying we're going to focus on literacy, numeracy, and high school graduation, innovation at secondary schools. And we're going to engage in capacity building with the sector in a kind of partnership. So we then began to invest in what are the changes that have to be made in the way that teaching is taught, literacy, numeracy. Uh, what about the role of data? Uh, making sure we use what we call non-judgmentalism, so it wasn't heavy-handed accountability. High expectations with transparency. And I could I could get at other things, but basically it's capacity building raise the bar, close the gap for uh, all students and all schools. And um, what we've accomplished, and it started within year two, but certainly this is now nine years later, high school graduation has gone from 68%, this is across 900 schools, to 82%, uh, and it's about to climb again another two percentage. Uh, so really phenomenal success. Literacy, uh, same huge gains, including closing the gap for special education, Reducing the gap is a better way of putting it in terms of performance, special education, 
English language learners. We have a lot of immigrants. And so by and large, a, a really strong success story. And as you said, uh, Mark Tucker has uh, interviewed us, looked at the data, and written about it, as have uh, McKinsey Group is another group, uh, and a couple of others have written about it. I think there's a huge story here. Um, we've been talking in my interview series about Posse Salberg's global education reform movement germ idea. We look yeah. a lot in the United States at kind of how we think about making progress. Canada represents, to me, much more potential for learning than Finland does, say, for the United mm -hmm. States, because of so many similarities and because of some very specific things that I, I was just so happy to read about and to see the story in the book. Um, can you tell me how important trust is in the process you've been through? Uh, well, uh, clearly trust is a big factor, but uh, the, the question is how do you get it if you don't have it, right? Uh, you can't just say, I'm going to be trustworthy, please you know, participate. So you have to prove that you're trustworthy. And a big issue around this, I think, uh, um, you know, I spent half of my time in the U.S. We're working a lot in quite a few states, actually. Uh, so I know that system and, uh, quite well, or the systems. Uh, but you have to, I think what you have to do, and it's a, uh, it requires policymakers to have a certain mindset. You can't go in there with heavy-handed punitive accountability and expect to establish trust, obviously just by saying it that way. It's clear that it won't happen. So we have that. We have this combination of high expectations, transparency, so everything's out in the open. But we tried to basically take a capacity-building approach and say, we're not going to be heavily-handed punitive. We're going to work with you and make improvements, and that's how we're going to get somewhere. And that builds trust. And once you get a certain degree of trust, it feeds on itself. The opposite applies, too. When you get lack of trust, it feeds on distrust. So, so trust is key, but it begs the question about how you get it. And you have to take that uh, stance that, uh, in, in fact, the best districts in the U.S., the ones that are successful, like Long Beach or Garden Grove in California, Sanger in California, places where we work in, uh, they, they, follow, they follow the same rules at the, at the district level. They create high expectations, strong focus, capacity building, uh, big emphasis on results, they create the trust, the trust of the partnership that will be required to get some movement. So is this what you, as you describe these core principles, are these part of what you, you mean when you talk about being change savvy? Uh, yeah, it's been at different levels. I did a book called All Systems Go, uh, which by the title it, it conveys that. So one uh, we've done, um, we've taken, uh, I guess I'll say, depends on who the focus is. So the focus for us, for me, has been sometimes it's the whole system. So that would be the state of California. Uh, it could be a district, but that's that's the minimal size. So in that sense, there's a certain degree of, uh, uh, we call them, or I call them in things I've written about, the wrong and the right drivers. So the right drivers are capacity building, uh, teamwork, uh, just going down the list, there are four of them. Teamwork is the second one. Uh, uh, instructional focus, or the core, is the third one. And then coordinated policies is the fourth one. And then the wrong drivers are, are punitive accountability, individualism, 
uh, relying on technology without pedagogy and ad hoc policies. So that that's the level we get at it with uh, with systems. But if I'm talking to individual leaders, which is our motion leadership label, I talk about change savvy. So I guess if you wanted to use that language, the first one is system savvy. How do you get the whole system to change? But if I'm zeroing in on individual leaders, like a school principal, district superintendent, or other leaders, then I'm 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 talking about our motion leadership uh, directives because it's about the particular leaders that have to do something. So I'm reminded in both, and I've got a picture on the screen that you're not seeing. It's the two motion leadership books. But in reading these books, yeah. I, I kept thinking about the total quality movement. It kept bringing me back to this sense of how change can actually take place and the importance of certain things working and certain other things not working. Is there a connection for you with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you could go back to the original work of uh, Deming and uh, those 14 qualities or whatever themes that he has in there, uh, they're very consistent with uh, what works. And so uh, people haven't, um, they've sort of lost sight of them, but his, his 14 qualities, when you really look at them, are the right drivers uh, because what the qualities do is they, um, they, they motivate people to put in the energy to get the work, to get the results. And that's what he knew way back when. And one of his 14 is drive fear out of the organization. I can't remember the, uh, the whole list of them because I don't have them in front of me. But you just take that drive fear of the organization. That's our, that's our um, uh, non-judgmentalism. That's exactly what that is. Because if you, if you have judgmentalism and it's in your face all the time, it causes people to uh, cover up and to uh, you know, pull back, get defensive. I get mobilized for a fight instead of for the action that's needed to get the improvement. So he was he was right ages ago, uh, and, it, and we've lost sight of it. So you have eight elements of this motion leadership, and one of them is actually change itself. And as a part of that, you talk about uh, beware of fat plans. So what yeah. I'm kind of hearing from you is you, you've got this sort of high level of this isn't that difficult. Right? There are four right. wrong drivers. There are four right drivers. Let's not get. Let's not let the tail wag the dog. Let's not get so yeah. involved in the details that we miss this high-level picture. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I borrowed Jeff Kluger's phrase. He wrote a book called Simplexity, and it's a very good phrase for what I concept for what I want, because the simple part is a small number of key things. Uh, they're not simplistic, but they're you can define them. You can understand them. The complex part is how do you make them work together when you have personalities and politics and levels of, of complexity. So uh, you mentioned the implementation plan, and it's, it, when, you, when you think of it this way, it really comes obvious that uh, we know, for example, that, uh, and I, I like Doug Reeves' observation on this, where he said the size and the prettiness of the implementation plan is inversely related to the quality of action. Uh, and, and then he has the data to show that. And we've seen the same thing. And when you look at a, an elaborate implementation plan, what it means is the planners have tried to get it right on paper. Well, getting it right on paper ends up to be not grounded in the cognitive clarity or the emotions that people have to implement it. So we have, um, the, you know, the paradox here is the implementation plan actually is not for the planners, it's for the implementers. Therefore, you better develop an implementation plan that has um, 
you know, that's sticky, that, that inspires action, that's memorable, that people can refer to it. And all of the systems we've worked in that are successful, people in school after school, including custodians, they know the core goals of the system. They know that the, that the, the strategy is uh, to invest in, in uh, the developing of people and putting in the results. So, so you really get a, uh, the, the implementation plan cannot become real if it's too complex on paper. And we have tons of examples of how easy this is to do. I just, I just want to take one more step here on this. A district uh, a superintendent called me last uh, year, said, we're having trouble, we're running, uh, uh, we're, our people are running out of energy. We're using your ideas. Can you come and work with us? So I asked him to send me the district-wide plan, which he did, and it was 31 pages long. It had 16 goals. And it had eight other things across the matrix at the top as to who does what. And you just read that and you say, well, yeah, it makes sense on paper, but how likely is it, and there were 41 schools in his district, that, that, in, that the principals would tell me uh, what was in that plan if I were to ask five of them randomly? How likely is it the teachers would say, uh, yeah, I know the implementation plan and I brace it? So we asked, actually asked them to reduce it to three core goals clusters, which they had no trouble doing. We went and worked with them for six sessions, and they took off. And it's because the plan then became amenable and closer to action instead of this fancy plan on paper that nobody could uh, really remember and put into, put into play. There's so much of brilliance here that it's pretty easy to see why you've had such an impact. When you talk about, uh, in the book, Peterson Waterman's phrase, ready, fire, aim, is that yeah. is that a part of getting past these detailed plans? Yeah, I think it's so. I mean, they they wrote that in 1982, I guess it was. It was a long time ago, anyways. And um, and they, they, you know, Tom Peters has a way of being somewhat cavalier about his observations. So it's only a metaphor, but we see it very clearly now that uh, that if you're dealing with something, because what you want to do is create ownership and capacity on the part of implementers. And so if we take any system like a school with a district with 12 schools or 200 schools, or in our own case, uh, 5,000 schools, if you're going to create uh, ownership and clarity and skills among a large number of people, you don't load it up at the, at the front end to get it and try to get it right and then implement it. It just won't work. So ready, fire, aim is actually a very good metaphor because it says, yeah, get ready, make sure you're uh, I've identified some key goals. Be committed to the moral imperative, we call it, raise the bar, close the gap. But then uh, get into action sooner than later because it's the action, the purposeful action, where you create the new skills and clarity, where you actually create ownership during the process. You, act, you cannot get ownership in advance of doing something. You can get superficial buy-in, but usually you don't even get that but you definitely can't get ownership until you do it. So uh, it's only a metaphor, but ready means, yeah, get the right direction. Fire means purposeful action, which is full of capacity building, which means new skills, new clarity. It starts to create ownership. And then uh, aim is, uh, to put it that way in this metaphor, is consolidating what you're learning and then doing it more purposefully and effectively uh, at the next phase and then it gets stronger and stronger. And that's really pretty much what we've done in the last nine years in Ontario. There's obviously more to this because 
you tell this great story of Steve Munby and the 500 phone calls. How important yeah. is the relationship piece here? Uh, it's uh, the relationship is key, but it has to have two things. It has to have a degree of specificity. That is, it's got to be it's not just good relationship. It's it's uh, it's particulars. Uh, so that uh, so that's one thing. Uh, and then it has to have with something you mentioned earlier, which is trust. So specificity or content plus trust, uh, and that's what uh, you know. When Steve began to build that relationship in, in doing that, but it's the same thing. in um, if we look at the principalship, I like Vivian Robinson, who's a professor in uh, uh, Auckland, New Zealand. When she um, um, did the study of school principals, the meta studies of all kinds of research. Uh, she found five things that principals did that were affected, uh, related to student achievement. And one of the five was uh, twice as important in terms of the effect size than the other four. And it was literally this, uh, that I'm paraphrasing her, her finding here, the degree to which the principal participated as a learner in working with staff to move the school forward. If you just take that phrase, participate as a learner, it means two things. One, it's, it's you're there doing it and building relationships. And two, you're learning something because you're actually dealing with the content. And if you imagine Steve at the beginning of his uh, head of the National College, when he spent those uh, two months or so uh, with the phone calls, he was participating as a learner, saying to school principals, how well have we been serving you? What, how do we have to do it differently? And he was building relationships, but he was getting content. And that, that both of those then made the next phase more uh, more um, uh, possible because the next phase was then to begin the action that built on that. So it was a great a great thing. I mean, it sounded like a huge investment of time, uh, and it was a certain amount of time. But what it was was he was actually uh, putting the t going slow to go fast would be the best way of putting it, right? He was spending a little extra time at the front end doing all these calls, but it made the action at the second phase way more uh, rapid than if he had just, for example, done some vision work and got into it where he didn't have those relationships. He didn't have that refinement of content that he got from that very specific exchange. It might be tempting to call that modeling learning, but it's, it feels like it's more than that. It feels like there was an authentic interest in really figuring out what needed to be done. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, modeling, you can, uh, modeling is a good word for it, but I guess you could, uh, you can't fake modeling. I mean, you can fake it, but it's not effective. So uh, he's not doing it just to manipulate the relationship. He's doing it because he fundamentally believed, I've got to build a relationship here with these uh, school principals. There are 25,000 of them in this case in England. I've got to start building relationships here. I've got to find out what's on their minds so I can, you know, mesh and relate to that. So he he just that's the change. Uh, kind of substance of that he knew would be necessary. So it wasn't a technique for him. It was, this is how change leaders have to work if they're going to make any progress. So you talk about whole system reform. And at the same time, we're experiencing a period in the history of our culture or as, as humans where the internet seems to be moving us away from systems and institutions. So how do you do the peer connecting piece? Well, um, we're working a fair amount with technology now, and I, I wouldn't—I I would say that uh, 
technology has. Uh, I mean, I had I wrote a book called Stratosphere last year. Uh, it was one of the early chapters was the dark side of the internet. So there are the evidence is there's it's not all glory, but when you look at it, you you can see that um, depending on how you approach it, that uh, Technology and the social and the media and the, the way that the internet has exploded, it certainly is conducive to a lot of isolationism and lone learners, so to speak. But it's also pretty obvious that when you use it purposefully, it's a fantastic collaborative tool. Uh, so that uh, so that the just the very word social media. I mean, if you think of social media put to a good purpose, which is learning and applied problem solving. Uh, so we. This is why. Remember the drivers. The paired drivers I had was technology wrong driver, instruction and pedagogy right driver. I, uh, what I mean by that is that if you start thinking of learning as the driver, and then you say to yourself, how can we use technology to accelerate and deepen it? Then you've got the right, right with the right equation. So I look on technology as a uh, a fantastic resource in the service of greater collaboration. That can occur, uh, and and uh, in any case, it's not just technology because you can have lots of collaboration within the schools that we see that don't depend on on technology, but have people uh, working together. What we've called the social capital uh, of the uh, and the quality of the either the district or the school. Social capital is the quality of the group working together to get something done. And if you start to build up your social capital. Which is relationships with purpose and skills, zeroing in on something that you're trying to accomplish and using the collective ingenuity to get there. Uh, lots of examples of how that works, and then people see it, they like it, they want to do more of it. So uh, I'm an optimist on the technology side, but I also realize that it can spin out in negative ways. So does your uh, your um, principles here? Principles is the wrong word. Do, do your, uh, does your framework here for leadership have implications for this idea of school leaders as CEOs? How do you respond to the kind of movement toward uh, running schools as a business? Uh, yeah, I think it, uh, you could use the CEO concept. Um, let's just take it at a general level for a moment, which is that Sometimes people say it's too bad schools are, you know, that business is business thinking is influencing schools because it's ruining things. But when you actually, I, I would observe it and say it's too bad that bad business ideas are getting in because when you go to the good businesses, the ones that Jim Collins and others have written about and analyzed, they have pretty much the the qualities that we have found in the best school systems, which are great leadership. That, that mobilizes other leadership, that develops collaboration, that's committed to a high purpose, that mobilizes uh, data to uh, not only monitor but influence and get better at that. So I do think that the uh, we could think of the principal, for example, or the superintendent as a CEO. But what that means is that uh, again, I'll just say the direct link to business is that business that's effective. A CEO is uh, effective CEO is someone who mobilizes the leadership in the organization to get really important things done and have people committed and satisfied and doing more of those. So it is um, it, it's a good it's you know it's a it's it's an all right analogy. I don't use it myself, but 
it's not that far off because we are talking about leaders who are building the social capital of the organization, whether we're talking about a principal vis-a-vis -vis teachers and students and community, or we're talking about a superintendent in relation to the 12 to 500 schools that they're dealing with. So it's pretty much running a big organization and motivating people to focus, to work with each other, to accomplish results that they haven't accomplished before. That's essentially it. You've made me remember how much I liked Jim Collins' material, and I, now I want to go back and kind of rethink it um, and some of his conclusions about leadership. Um, in your section yeah, yeah. on... Well, he had his, sorry, just he had his, uh, you know, the, uh, the first one that made him famous, so to speak, but his last one, which is called Great by Choice, uh, really good stuff in there, just uh, that's consistent with the earlier work, but more refined to the, you know, to the present findings. And uh, it's it's really about focused, disciplined work that builds capacity and commitment and uh, that doesn't go overboard on um, on trying to manipulate things in a narrow way. So you talk about capacity building, trumping judgmentalism. And there's mm -hmm. a fair amount of material on Jamie Oliver, and I did not know much about him, but really appreciated it. What did he do that was so enlightening? Well, it's, I mean, I'm always looking for interesting uh, stories or examples of people who, against the odds, began to uh, um, um, get something done that most people thought couldn't be done. So we know, I mean, in England especially, where he was successful, uh, here's a guy that's a, a young chef, knew lots about uh, healthy food and tasty food, saw his own kids were three, four, five years of age, uh, saw that they were just eating, I mean, he uses rough language, but eating crap in school, and then he wanted to make a contribution. So let's call that his moral purpose. He said, I've got knowledge, I've got expertise, I've got resources and leverage. Let me now uh, try to influence uh, what kids are eating in school because we know they're eating crappy stuff that not only is bad for them in their health, but it's also bad in relation to learning. The kind of, there's uh, the uh, medical evidence that he com compiled around that that showed uh, kids were less focused, more tired, uh, uh, heading towards uh, uh, ill health and, and right, right away, let alone when they grew up. <laughs> so. Uh, what's what's a good change example is he had the expertise, but he didn't make a fatal mistake, which often people with expertise do. Uh, I'll put it this way. Being right is not a strategy. I don't know whether that sort of comes across, but being right is not a strategy. So let's take Jamie. He's, he was right about the food analysis, but he didn't go in with a strategy that said, I'm right, please listen to me. He went in with a strategy that said, these people don't know I'm right, so how am I going to handle this? And then he got to the, you know, the food, the, the food ladies who were head ran right the cafeterias. They didn't know anything about the good food, and so he had to hear as an expert figure out. I've come to call it uh, impressive empathy. Impressive empathy is when you have empathy for someone who doesn't think like you do, and you need them to uh, be more open-minded. But you're empathetic to where they're coming from. So the dinner ladies, they're called, at the head of the cafeteria, Nora was one in particular that was featured in his work. So he converted that person uh, who became then a leader along with him to convert others. So what's brilliant about it is here's someone with a strong moral purpose, uh, is smart enough to say, I have to win people over who don't know what I know 
and I'm not going to win them over with sheer evidence. I've got to build relationships here, and I've got to work with people. So in his series, you see the frustrations that he went through and how he kind of persevered, was resilient, had empathy, built relationships, and eventually was successful. So it's a very good uh, regular example from everyday life about how you can get change and how actually simple it is on the one hand, uh, because good food and uh, that's better for you and it's going to make you healthier and it's tastier uh, must be a good proposition. Simple on the one hand, but to overcome the uh, habits and the culture that preceded that uh, and has built in uh, in order to overcome that is brilliant at the same time. So I, I liked it because it's a good example of change and sophistication, but kept the human uh, doable element to it through leadership. Uh, I'm not the only one who's madly typing. People are in the chat as well. Those are just really impressive quotes. Um, another one from the book for me was that his moral purpose kept him from being overly judgmental or negative. <clears throat> yeah, I and mean, that's a difficulty. I mean, just take moral purpose in education, which is uh, a passionate commitment to the betterment of uh, students' lives especially those that are disadvantaged. Uh, you can see with that, that how valuable that is, but you can also see that it might make you impatient with others who aren't kind of responding, teachers, for example. So for me, it's possible uh, and dangerous in a sense. Uh, this is an odd way of putting it, but I would say you can have too much moral purpose. And if you're, over, if you're so committed that you're not sensitive to who you're dealing with and how you how you motivate people, you just actually create battleground. And a lot of change agents have failed on that. So I think what Jamie had and what we look for in leaders is this combination of having strong values themselves about what needs to change and then having this impressive empathy that I've got to build relationships who, with people who don't know what I know. And I've got to learn a little bit from them, but I've also got to build the relationships where they will, uh, will have a chance of, uh, of actually getting the right ideas into place. So it's this very sophisticated combination of having strong moral purpose and having the flexibility of, and resilience of how you uh, overcome obstacles and build relationships. And then once you get some things going, once you get some momentum, it then can feed on itself and be much stronger. Am I over-interpreting your work if I see a really significant parallel here between that moral purpose, overcoming judgmentalism and negativism, and the nature of how a teacher treats a child? It's, yeah, these are, um, what I'm talking about is basic human relationships, right? Uh, so if you just say, um, uh, we could take it, on, uh, it's how the teacher treats a child, it's how parents treat their children. Uh, we know, I mean, just I kind of think of uh, way of characterizing the, some of the research on parenting, but we know, I would say, two things that don't work. One is the authoritarian coercive parent, and the other is the parent who leaves the, leaves the kids alone and, and basically laissez-faire. Those, those are two good examples, actually, of leadership or lack of leadership, because if we try to be coercive, even if we are doing the right things, uh, people rebel. If we leave everybody alone and say it's laissez-faire, then uh, people either don't think we're, we care uh, and or they don't do anything. So the, the, the leader here 
and the teacher, the teacher has to have empathy to the student who's not interested in learning. The teacher can't just be right saying, you've got to learn because it's good for you. That's not much of a strategy. And so we, uh, we see the best teachers are the ones that motivate kids that aren't normally motivated. That's what they do. Same with adults in, in change leadership. Motivate those that aren't normally motivated. That's emotional leadership. So the man who wrote the book, Small is Beautiful, wrote another book in which he characterized problems as either being convergent or divergent. And he said mm -hmm. the divergent problems are ones where there's never expected to be a final agreement. But if you have love, there will always be a solution. Is love a word you use? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I do use it, but not that way. I, don't, I, I mean, I... Um, I might say, you know, you know, you know, we might make the case that uh, if you have love, that that uh, that all everything else will be right, and possibly that's, but that's not where I'm getting at. Uh, in fact, in the six secrets of change, the first one is called love your employees, and what, by that I mean that you uh, you have this kind of attitude towards people that I can build relationships here. And that I can um, I can have what I've called impressive empathy, which makes me more likely to be able to relate relate to people. I can develop the conditions under which people will be more successful. And so one of the ways I put it is the best way to love teachers is to create the kind of culture whereby they can be successful. So to me, um, love is more of a uh, I hate to say it this way, but because I, I actually mean it sincerely, and it sounds manipulative when I say it this way, but love is a strategy and a human value that you relate to other people on the basis that you think that if you treat them well and you create learning conditions and you create the pressures within that, another big one is peer pressure We want for us. If you want to change the group, use the group to change the group. So there's a, uh, several variables in here, not a whole number, but three or four that are, go together here that really tries to treat people better, build their capacity, put the right kind of uh, pressure within the culture, and get new things happening, which people end up valuing and therefore wanting to do more of them. And it is, uh, it, you know, it has to do with respect and love and trust, but it's not kind of, to me, um, a blind love that I'll go in there and love everybody and things will be all right. And I'm not sure that I've represented Schumacher's um, work accurately, but I really like how you've described that. Um, there was another element to trust that I really appreciated, which is the willingness to trust yourself as a leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you, um, this is part of risk-taking, right, uh, that you, um, Leaders who don't take risk about what they're doing don't learn much. Uh, so that uh, you have to go through the learning curve in order to learn something. And if you don't take any risk, you don't uh, expose yourself to that, that part. So I, I think it's this uh, constellation of leaders, if we think about leadership qualities, where leaders are who, who eventually become effective. And this is where another thing where we, we miss something. If we see a great leader that's, let's say, uh, he's been a leader for 20 years, 
uh, we think, well, this person either is a born leader or is so fantastic. But what we don't see is the learning curve that w they went through. Let's say we're talking about someone who's really effective as being a leader for 20 years. If we were to be able to go back to year one and year two, we would see that person probably not very effective. But what they did is they learned to become more effective because they uh, they they were learners. They they were committed to that, and they made mistakes, and they didn't let mistakes destroy them. So I think that's very part, very much part of that uh, confidence. Um, uh, I forget what the it was uh, Peters and Waterman, uh, or I think no, it's Pfeffer and Sutton had a great definition of uh, wisdom, which uh, was something like using your knowledge while doubting what you know. Uh, that's a great way of putting it. So P, those leaders did use what they knew, but they also were open to say, I might be wrong, I have to learn and that. So I think this is this is trusting yourself as a learner and not being destroyed if you make mistakes. We heard from Yang Zhao today in another keynote, and there's a very interesting connection here with um, how learners feel about themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see that this translates then into learning environments where learners are willing to kind of learn to take risks themselves? Yeah, I mean, we can go to, you know, you possibly have had uh, or looked at Car uh, Carol Dweck's work on the mindset, the fixed and the growth mindset, uh, and she yes. says this exactly right. Uh, she said some people, and she was talking about people of all ages, but less like students, uh, some people have a... Uh, a fixed mindset and some people have a growth mindset. And the growth mindset are those uh, those students who uh, are people who um, basically are not thrown by mistakes. They said, I made a mistake, but I've learned from it. I'm going to get better from it. And they, 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 they treat it as a learning proposition. But the fixed mindset people don't take as many chances because they're, when they make a mistake, they feel it reflects totally on their own inner self. And so they, go, they play it safe. And she's actually thankfully been able to uh, train people, uh, the students, to have more of a growth mindset. So what Yang Zhao was saying is, is the same thing. You have, to, you have to create the conditions where students see themselves as learners and have a growth mindset. And those conditions are you're allowed to make mistakes. You're not punished in an immediate, narrow way about mistakes. Uh, you, you need to have a growth and a learning attitude towards them. And those are habits that you can, uh, to a certain extent, uh, cultivate in yourself. And they're definitely habits that the culture can create, the risk-taking learning culture versus the fixed punitive culture. Those are two different, very, two very different cultures. One fosters and rewards uh, learning, and the other one punishes mistakes. So in the discussion of the differences between Canada and the United States, and I think you may be sort of uniquely in a position to comment on them, uh, one of the things that comes up is the amount of lobbying money that's involved in decision making in the U.S. Is that mm -hmm. one of the factors that you look at when you think about the differences? Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think there is... Um I guess it is, well, first of all, the good qualities that are related to success, we see them a lot in the U.S. That is, it's not like that's not there. The trouble is they're there in small pockets and they don't, uh, they're really not dominant enough. Um, but I think there, there's something about the um, quick fix mindset that politicians have in uh, the U.S. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, 
where they think by uh, legislating something they can you know they can get it done and that uh, this impatient to try to solve a problem and then the more that it, it never gets solved the more they resort to you know additional uh, uh, kind of heavy-handed methods so it's kind of a vicious cycle but I, I don't know what the uh, certainly there's uh, differences in um, uh, how 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 the funding where we have a lot more uh, funding devoted on a per pupil basis to it's more equitable it's more focused on where it's needed uh, governance a big number lots of school districts uh, Illinois has the same population as Ontario they have 700 or 800 school districts we have 72 so when you get that kind of layered on governance it's hard to get it to cohere so I think uh, there's some something mysterious going on but uh, uh, whatever it is that there's been too much of a uh, quick fix mindset on the part of politicians and policymakers in the US and that uh, the more that it doesn't get fixed ironically the more that they want to get the next quick fix in place we're going to give our listeners a chance to ask some questions um, we'll probably do it by the chat Michael's on the telephone, so he won't be able to see the chat, but I'll keep track of them and try and answer them. So if you've got a question, please feel free to put it in the chat. And um, I'm going to ask one more question before we shift to that. Can you tell me what deprivatization of practice means? Uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, it means literally what it says, in a sense, the history of the teaching profession. Uh, this goes, I mean, Daddy in 1975, or whenever he was, when he wrote The School Teacher. He said the, the, the teaching is a lonely profession. Uh, the, the whole history of the teaching profession is behind the classroom door. Uh, so that what deprivatization means literally is opening the classroom door so that people can see what's happening and learn from each other. In fact, John Goodlatte in 1968, when I was a rookie, uh, wrote a nice short book called Behind the Classroom Door. So uh, the reason... Um, uh, and I'm answering more of your question they might have asked, but I'll just give you one more key point about it. Uh, when you have individual classroom autonomy, this means two things. One, it means it's a license to be creative, and the second, it means it's a license to be ineffective and, for, and, and to not know it or to not have others knowing it. So uh, if you put it to the positive side, uh, we have quite a long history now of research that says when teachers collaborate in a focused way, which is deprivatization, if you like, uh, and, and they're well led by school instructionally oriented principal and supportive principal, uh, a lot more achievement gets done because they're focusing better, they're drawing on each other's resources, they're correcting things more readily because it's out in, in the open. So uh, deprivatization in brief is when uh, people's teaching practices are amenable to observation and correction, and when the results actually are known in terms of how well they're doing with their with their students, uh, the positive way of putting it is that we now call it social capital, which is uh, when people work together in a focused way, well led, they get more done. This for me was one of those points in the book that had such a great connection to Deming, right? And it's part of your transparency section mm -hmm. and that is how understanding how real data helps everybody get better and not using data for judgmentalism did I get that right yeah 
Uh, you did because it's it, it's a it, ironically again you get more accountability if you approach it indirectly. Indirectly is the data out there, but it's used for improvement, not not punishment. And you actually get more action, more uh, more accountability out of that. Whereas the direct method, which is you give people feedback and there's sticks and carrots attached to that, it doesn't work as effectively. It's it's all, I mean it's Daniel Pink. What, what motivates people? What doesn't motivate people? Okay, so we're going to move to Q and A. Uh, we have got a few minutes left. If you have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat, or you can raise your virtual hand to the third icon over. Maureen wants to know: Is there a different attitude about children in Canada? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I think there's tremendous uh, passion in both countries for the future of children, the immediate future, and that. So there's no difference in the uh, passion and commitment to children. Uh, it just seems that the uh, strategy of how to get there is uh, more complicated and ineffective in the U.S., but not the commitment uh, and not the way that children are valued and treated and, and seen. I don't think there's a big difference on that at all. Catherine wants to know, what do school leaders do when a teacher refuses to work together or collaborate? Uh, that's, a big, that's a good question, and it's, uh, it's a big question that's um, uh, because it, it's, you know, it's in motion leadership. But let me talk about briefly the, the, what I call the resistance mindset. If a teacher refuses to collaborate, uh, let, let, let me say what not to do you can confront that teacher and have a power play. And we can predict that that power play, uh, you might win the battle and lose the war, but you'll probably spin off into losing both the battle and the war if you're a principal. So, so trying to uh, confront it bluntly is not going to work. What we have is uh, a combination of, um, of trying to get some action. So when I put it in, I'll put it in four terms. One is, we say give people respect before they've earned it. So here's the teacher that's not cooperating. And you're trying to give them respect before they've earned it because where are they coming from? Try to understand it. Secondly, practice impressive empathy, which is how do I be empathetic to this person who I really want to be happening, changing differently. Third is uh, build a climate where, uh, where they can be affected. So using peers to influence peers. And then, uh, and then the fourth one is we call deal firmly with what's left over. So in my, in, in, a, in the case of the question that's asked, I would at the beginning give the person the benefit of the doubt. I would try to create conditions that would cause movement. And then I would eventually, if nothing worked, take action. Note what's happening here with the peers, so I'll put it this way, that if I do that sequence that I just described and then I take let's say negative action, if I use that word, the chances of me getting away with it in terms of the culture of that school with the peers is a lot greater than if I came in as a principal at the beginning and took negative action against a staff member. The, the, I wouldn't get away with that. The peer, the culture would rebel against it. So it's a subtle process, I guess. It's, a, it's one where you have to try to figure out what is happening with that person. You try to create conditions that would put pressure and support in an in a integrated positive way to cause movement and uh, look for movement. And we've seen big changes actually in people. And then um, 
and then you know along the way you might be more uh, direct about it. But you can't get people to change just by ordering them to change, even if you have the formal authority. Michael, what is it about you or your background that leads you to being such a good voice for this kind of clarity? Uh, I'm not sure. I came into this um, not as an educator. I took my, my, did my PhD in the 60s in sociology. Uh, I was fortunate to get in the ground up. There wasn't much um, major work on collaboration and implementation when I started, so I kind of grew up with the field. And um, maybe it's partly my sociology, uh, which is that sensitivity to the group and how the, uh, the strength and the weaknesses of groups. Uh, but mainly it's been, um, uh, I would say, two things. One is it's a commitment to fix things. Uh, so that, that that's something that, um, you know, that's, that really engages me. How do you, how do you change Ontario's 5,000 schools? So that a commitment to problem solve is a driver. And the other is spending a lot of time immersed in the, in the, in the actual problems and then getting smart about it as a result of those, uh, those experiences when, when uh, Malcolm Gladwell made the 10,000 hour rule famous, which is if you are a learner and you really do apply yourself and you learn and get better and better uh, over your so-called 10,000 hours plus plus, you actually do get better because you've immersed yourself in the reality of it and tried to problem solve. So I think it, to me it's that uh, burning desire to see things improve uh, and, uh, and then secondly to be part of the action and doing that and as a result of doing that to get, I guess you get, you get smarter about, you've seen the patterns before, you get smarter about what, does, what works and what doesn't work and you get more excited because you can think you can make a bigger difference. So I don't know whether that answers the question but it's kind of a constellation of things that I just described. Yeah. It's a terrific answer, and it's been so much fun to talk to you. This is the reschedule of an interview that you unfortunately had to miss before. I really want to thank you for being willing to do it, especially as a part of this conference. It's, the, it's a great way to finish our School Leadership Summit. Well, you have a great question, Steve. I really, uh, really appreciate it. And I'm sorry the technical part didn't work, but I felt like I was, was with you anyways. Yes, we felt like we've been with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. This has been Michael Fullen, the final keynote for this 2013 School Leadership Summit. Hope you've had a great time. Again, thanks, Michael. Okay. Thanks, Steve, everybody. Bye. Bye now. Thanks, everybody, for joining. We're going to finish this session up. I'm going to click uh, the recording off, and then those of you who would like can join us in the Summit After Party Room, where we only spend a few minutes, but just sort of celebrating the, the day. Uh, and then we'll let you move on. But I hope it's been worthwhile for you. Thanks again to Michael, and thanks to all of you.